Well, thanks everybody for joining us this morning. Hope that God will have a a message for your heart. I know that um, I need the messages that He sends through our teaching here, and uh, it's been very, very challenging to me. The book of Revelation is a a difficult one to understand. Lots of images and and um, figurative language and some of that, and and it makes it a little bit tough. But our philosophy, at least, is that we're going to li- uh, try to literally accept or translate, interpret what, what Scripture is teaching in Revelation as much as possible. I mean, you know, when there's an obvious figure of speech or an obvious illustration, you've got you to gotta say, okay, uh, you know, I, I understand that uh, we, we just put that in the, in the hopper. But uh, when it comes down to it, as much as possible, the way we try to interpret this book is, is a literal interpretation. And since there's uh, uh, such strong messages in Revelation, it's a really important book. In fact, it's so important that when the Lord Jesus uh, inspired John to write it, he told him to include this concept that those who study, who read and study this book will be blessed. So, hey, God's going to bless you this morning. And, you know, you may not walk out with a halo over your head or or feel a, a glow in your heart, but no, you've been blessed because you spent time in the book of Revelation. Now, the real blessing comes when we take the lessons from what Revelation is teaching us and make them stick in our lives. So, if you want the blessing to continue, then you go beyond study and you say, I want to practice. I want to put into my life the very things that I, that I heard and learned from the book of Revelation. Last week, uh, we had a great challenge from Matthew. The week before, from Jake. By the way, why is Jake smiling this Sunday? Anyway, let's move ahead. I always look at Jake, and when he frowns at me, I know he disapproves of what I'm teaching. So I'm not even going to look over there this morning. You're see, smiling. boy, Jake. Um, Revelation. Let's read together from chapter 11, please. Revelation 11. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Some interesting concepts in there. First is, uh, what's going to be measured? Because there's no temple. A little bit of a problem, isn't there? And uh, again, you'll get various interpretations as to what's going on here. But um, I kind of like the literal interpretation that J. Hampton Keithley, I always go to J. Hampton Keithley when I need a little help. Bible.org, by the way. And you can look up um, various books and you click on the book and then it, it gives you 15 different messages about the book. And you can, it's really kind of neat. But anyway, I like J. Hampton, so I go to him often. He says, this passage shows us that the Jews will again have a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation. There's not one there now. In fact, what's at the temple site right now? (laughs) Wailing Wall is there. What else? Dome of the Rock Mosque. A Muslim, uh, what do they call it? Not a synagogue, Muslim 
mosque. It's a Muslim mosque, see? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's going to be a bit of a problem. So what are they going to do? Anyway, he says the temple will be rebuilt very early in the first half of the tribulation and the Jews will offer sacrifices there as they did in the time of Christ. Wow, very interesting. Now, does anybody in Jerusalem really care about what the book of Revelation says? You know, they aren't exactly real strong on the New Testament in Israel. Have you noticed that? For some reason, they just... Oh, anyway, okay. Um, but look at this. This is a quote from the Sanhedrin of the 6th millennium. They are a group of, of um, devout Jewish people totally committed to Judaism, still looking for the Messiah, very much into Israel as a nation. They say this, the prophecy of redemption is being fulfilled in our days. Got that? They notice that the prophecy that is the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled in our days with the ingathering of the exiles. And remember last time I spoke, I talked about the whole concept of Israel. Just the fact that Israel exists as a nation. The fact that, that, that there's even um, an identifiable government of Israeli-type people is a miracle. Beyond belief. In fact, if you've been catching the news at all this last couple of weeks, anybody know what's going on as far as Israel is concerned last couple of weeks? What's happening at the UN? Okay, well, I'm not going to tell you. You have to look it up for yourself. Oh. I was going to say the Palestinians are saying we belong in Israel. It's our country. It belongs to us. Of course, Israel's not real big on that philosophy, but a huge, huge number of people in the UN are supportive of the Palestinian state. And uh, I watched Benjamin Netanyahu, who's kind of one of my heroes, uh, on an interview on TV, and uh, he's making it abundantly clear that that ain't going to happen. All right? So you've got the whole world really in opposition to Israel. You've got the whole Muslim world hating Israel, saying we are going to drive those Israelis into the ocean and watch them drown. And that's their commitment. And I don't know what the, what the Arab and Muslim population is in the world, but I think there's a few more of them than there are Israelis. Don't you? And so if, if, if my neighbors said we are going to drive Leverance out of the neighborhood and 58 different households got together, I think they might have a chance. Don't you think? There's prophecy. There's Old Testament promise from God that says that is not going to happen. You can check Ezekiel 12 and you can look in Isaiah and you can look in several other places in the Old Testament where God said, I'm going to regather those people. There's no trace of their, of their country. I'm going to regather them and I'm going to give them a land. 1948, British uh, Parliament said, okay, we're going to turn over this chunk of land to... These Jewish people, they've suffered a lot un and under Hitler and the Holocaust, and we'll give them a little place that they can call their homeland. It's going to be real tiny. And yet now it has been the focus of world events for, for the last several years. You know what happened? There's a, a team of Christians from the United States that went to Israel about eight years ago and started, got permission and started drilling for oil. And they believe 
that they are on almost down to an oil deposit that is as big as Saudi Arabia's, right in the little land of Israel. Now, they've already found a huge natural gas resource that, that will supply energy for their country and the U.S. And, and half the world for hundreds of years. And if there's oil beneath that, as big a resource as in Saudi Arabia, I'll tell you what, they're going to be in pretty good shape. No wonder. No wonder people want them driven off the land. But I believe God has said, no, they're there. And they're there to stay. And a lot of what we read in this chapter right now, 11 and 12, has to do with little Israel being where they are today. You say, well, <clears throat> that's fine, but I live in the United States of America and I'm uh, part of a Christian nation and I'm not Jewish and so I'm not going to get too revved up about this. Well, get revved up because there's a lot that impacts you in relationship to this. Okay, so let me try and try and work our way through this. Sanhedrin of six million says prophecy of redemption is being fulfilled in our days with the ingathering of the exiles and the liberation of the land. Yet the great task of rebuilding the temple is still before us. So there's men in, in Israel, people in Israel who are committed to the rebuilding of the temple. Look at this. In 1982, after years of disagreement about the methods of approach, three groups of devout Jews, the Jerusalem Temple Foundation, to the mountain of the Lord and the faithful of the Temple Mount combined their forces to plan for and build the third temple. More recently, the Temple Institute, and that's the big group, okay? The Temple Institute has begun to build the sacred vessels to be used in the third temple. Isn't that exciting? They're working on a candlestick. They're having a brazen altar made. They're getting the gold uh, bowls and so on that are necessary. They're getting it together. Again, does that have an impact on me? I'm a Christian. I'm not a Jewish person. Jewish sacrifices, I believe, have no impact compared to what the blood of Christ has done. But understand this. There's lots of really cool things that have to happen between now and the time they will be able to use those sacred vessels in the third temple. But there are people planning it, people working on it. A couple more quotes. Uh, this again from the Sanhedrin uh, of, the, uh, of the sixth millennium. During 1982 military action in Lebanon, the Israeli army discovered and captured huge stores of Russian and Syrian weaponry stored in secret bunkers and tunnels in preparation for a northern invasion. Obviously, that was thwarted when they, when they found the, uh, the ammo. But anyway, it was also reported by very reliable sources, and I can't tell you who they are because I don't know, but anyway, they're reliable, so trust them. Okay that a large supply of the famous Lebanese cedar, which w was also recovered and is safely stored away for use in construction of the third temple. Whew. I kind of like it. Kind of getting pumped. Well, what does all this mean? What's all this measuring? Oh, did I have one more? Oh, yeah. If a new temple is to be constructed, then there must be a functioning priesthood to perform such a proper such uh, the proper rites and ceremonies. Such a priesthood is now in the works. In an old stone building in the old city of Jerusalem, a small group of young scholars are preparing for the building of the third temple and the coming of the Messiah. They're getting ready. The Jewish people are getting ready to rebuild their temple, to reestablish temple worship. They're going to make a comeback is what they're thinking. 
It has an impact on me. But that's not where we're going to draw our spiritual lesson this morning, okay? Let's go back to the very first thing that we saw in in Revelation 11, and that was that there was a measuring rod that was given to, I assume it was John, and he was told, measure the temple, but also measure the people. Did you catch that? Measure the temple and measure the people. And what we're talking about is that God has a standard. Now, if you miss everything else in what we say this morning, please capture what's on this slide because this is really, I think, the heart of what God is communicating to us today as a Christian nation or as a non-Jewish nation anyway. Okay? God evaluates according to His standard, not according to my standard. I would let you sneak by on some stuff. You know why? Because I fail in those areas too. All right? Having, having bitter thoughts towards someone. Anyone here? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I want you to give yourself away. Have you ever had a bitter thought towards someone? You know what? Scripture suggests that's sin. But I'll let you have a couple because you know what? <laughs> I have some too. What does God say? God says, Lev, here's my standard. No bitter thoughts. Here's where you are, buddy. You don't measure up. And if it were left to me, if I were on my own devices, I could count on being separated from God's holiness for the rest of eternity. Thankfully, there's an out, isn't there? Thankfully, there's a a, a source for us that we can use to deal with it. None of us measure up to His standards. That's the very definition of sin. To fall short of the standard. And every one of you, nice guy I am to point it out, every one of you has at least one sin in your life. Alright? If you can't find it, I'll talk to you later. I'll help you. But they're there. Every one of us has at least one sin. And because God is absolutely holy, you are eliminated. You are disqualified because you have that sin as a part of your person. And so you will not have access to God. I find that rather dreadful. In fact, as we work our way into chapter 12, we'll start to see some of the judgments. And by the way, Matthew and Jake both pointed out some of the huge judgments that are going to fall on this earth after the time of... Well, I can't give it away yet. In a few weeks, in a few months some of the judgments that are going to happen, and it is, it is horrible. It is horrendous. It is almost beyond comprehension how awful it's going to be. And that doesn't begin to compare with what it's going to be like for those who have sin in their life that has not been dealt with as they for eternity are separated from holy God. Talk about being the bearer of bad news. But you know what? I'm quoting Holy Scripture because it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory or the glorious standard of God. And so, my friends, my family, you sit here today condemned to an eternity 
of separation from God. Some people call it hell. And it's indescribable how horrible that would be. Should we stop the message there? No, because look at that next line. Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus took all of my sin. He put it on Himself. He said, Lev, you can't possibly take care of that yourself. I love you. Let me do it for you. And He took every single one of my sins. Are you listening? He took every one of your sins onto Himself. And God punished Him for my sin. He shed His blood. Now get this. Only, and again, I have this on the authority of the Word of God. I'm not making this up. Only by complete trust, underline the word complete because that's the one I want you to dwell on this morning. Only by complete trust in His death can I have my sin debt paid. That's what the Bible says. Well, what about good works? Aren't aren't good works important? Well, yeah, it's nice, but it has nothing to do with paying for your sin. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough to pay for your sin. What you're saying when you add good works to the equation is you're saying Christ's death is not quite enough, so I'll accept that part of it, but then I will also add this, that, and the other thing. What if I believe He died, but I need to add my part? Well, that's called faith plus. And faith plus is not complete trust. Do you get it? Okay. Complete trust means you put all of your eggs in this basket. You don't save one over here and say, well, I'm going to hang on to this works thing just in case He doesn't quite cut it. What an insult. What, what, a, what a, a terrible slap in the face to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has said, I've paid it all. My blood is sufficient. What I offer you is total, complete salvation. Don't add anything. And yet a lot of people in Christianity say, you know what? You have to add some things. And I'm, I'm begging you, please don't listen to them. That's not what the Bible teaches. Study the Word yourself. Go to the book of John. Read your way through the book of John. Ask God to give you understanding as you read through the Gospel of John and you'll see over and over and over again that there's no room for anything to be added to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Some would say, well, you have to add baptism. Can't possibly be saved unless you're also baptized. What is that? That's faith. What? Faith plus. And faith plus is not complete trust. It's not complete faith. You understand that? Well, you have to have penance. You have to have a broken heart. You have to come as a broken person. Well, <coughs> there's truth to that. But the Scripture says that you don't put your trust in your attitude, in your heart. You recognize that you're a sinner, that you've been separated from God, that you deserve to suffer the eternal consequences of your sin, and that the only thing that can save you from your sin is complete trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Baptism, penance, 
purgatory. All of them are ways of saying, Jesus, your death is not enough. And that's an insult. Complete trust. Can you hear me? I pray that God will touch your heart with that message. What about these temple measurements? Well, as he measures, he recognizes that there will be some who are included among those who meet the standard. There are others who will be outside. Remember he said, don't even worry about that outer court. That's going to be left to the nations. And we're going to see in the rest of this passage that there are those in the, in the uh, world today and in the world to come who are opposed to the things of God. And as the standard is held up, they do not measure up. What do you suppose the standard is? Now, it doesn't say it here, but implied in the rest of Scripture, here's the standard. Without the shedding of blood, there's no payment for sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes complete trust in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Leverance, we're all believers this morning. Why are you dwelling on that? I'm not sure. But the... As I studied this, I just, I just felt a, compass, a compulsion, I should say, to, to, to remind you as a believer that this is what your total sufficiency is in. And if, if there's some who are not believers, then the message is there for you too. But the fact is that we have only the blood of Christ. That a defining standard will still be faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus. Let's keep reading. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Whoops. What happened? Sam, I'm not sure what I did. Anyway, verse 3 says, And I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. How long is 1260 days? How many months? 42. Right? 360 days divided by 30 is 42. 42 months is how many years? Three and a half. Interesting number. Okay. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants uh, to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power. What did I do? Killed in this way. Okay, see? I, yeah. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Two witnesses. Who are these guys? Again, we don't know. It doesn't say. There's been a lot of conjecture. There's been a lot of thinking on this subject. And um, some suggest that it was... Elijah and Moses. And they get that because who did Jesus visit with on the Mount of Transfiguration? Good, Elijah and Moses, yes. That may be the two witnesses. Who knows, they may come back just as they did in that time. I think probably we should (coughs) maybe not start naming names, 
but understand that this could possibly be figurative language. Remember when John the Baptist was was uh, on earth, the Lord Jesus said about him that he was a modern-day Elijah. In fact, when the Jews said, well, you know what? Elijah has to come before the Messiah. And Jesus said, well, <laughs> he was here. You just missed it. It was John the Baptist. Okay? Figurative. The spirit of Elijah was existed in John the Baptist and the message of Elijah was there in John the Baptist. And so <clears throat> it could well be that... Uh, the spirit of Elijah and Moses is in these two men and their, their message is similar and their desire is similar and their passion for the work and so on. Sometimes people say it, it, it's probably going to be Enoch and Elijah. Why, why Enoch and Elijah? Any guesses? Two people in Scripture that never died. They were, one was hauled off in a, a flaming chariot and I don't know what happened to Enoch. He just walked away, I guess says he walked with God and he was not. So anyway, whatever happened may be them. But let's not worry about it. Let's understand this, that the Scripture says there's going to be two guys that show up, maybe not literally Elijah and Moses or Elijah and Enoch or Enoch and Moses, but two men whom God will raise up in the spirit and power of their Old Testament counterparts. Guess where I got that quote? Jay Hampton. Okay, anyway. Pronouncing... God's, oh, I'm sorry, what are they doing? What they're doing is prophesying, prophesying. Theron Young, when he was here, gave us the best definition for prophesying that I've ever heard. He says, whenever someone stands and says, thus says the Lord, they're prophesying. When they speak God's words, they're prophesying. Hey, Ethan, could you give me a drink of water? Because I'm going to start yakking here pretty quick. All right, <clears throat> hacking, which turns to, never mind. Pronouncing God's judgment is, uh, that is to come. They're telling the world that has chosen to follow the Antichrist that he's, he's a false messiah. And what's neat is they are totally untouchable. Three and a half years, <coughs> and they're going to prophesy. Three and a half years, they're going to be standing in the temple area in Jerusalem. No one can put their hands on them as much as they have things to say that they don't want to hear. <coughs> as much as they're opposed. <coughs> Thank you, bro. My hero. Jake always does that, so I think it must be okay. <coughs> they have enormous power. Get near them. Try and ha put your hands on them. What do they do? And fire comes... Talk about bad breath. Fire comes out of their mouth and we got a crispy critter up here instead of a wife for Kevin. Wow! That's powerful. They have other powers. And when you look at the other powers that were listed... Let me see. Can I back up, Sam? Red. 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 They can shut up the sky so the rain will not fall. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Wow! The Jewish people hear that message and they that sounds familiar. Remember when we were captives in Egypt? What happened? How did we get out of there? God sent plagues. 
plagues very similar to what these, these people will experience in that, in that coming day. <clears throat> and the Jewish people, many of them will remember and will turn to their God. Unfortunately, there'll be a lot who don't turn. And we keep reading. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Where? Where is that? In the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. That's disgusting. They're just going to gloat over them. You know, even, even in our culture, when, when you hit a deer, you, you call the, the sheriff and he sends out somebody from the DNR and they take that thing away. They don't let it lie there for three and a half days or they're not supposed to anyway. We don't do that. When someone dies, we don't just say, oh, yeah. In fact, they didn't just let him die. They, they, uh, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another. Wow! Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth and now they're dead. We finally shut them up. We finally got rid of them. And they celebrate. They're delighted. Keep reading. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. In that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And then he ends this paragraph by saying, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. <clears throat> That little phrase, they were terrified and gave glory to God is an interesting one. You see, you and I have a purpose on life, in life. You and I have been saved for a good work, which is to glorify God. And so it sounds to me like these people are doing a good thing. They were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. But it reminds me of a verse we read earlier this morning in Philippians 2. Luke, I think, did you have us turn there? Where's Luke? I saw him once. Mr. Shelley, you, you had us turn there? Yeah, okay. It reminds me of that portion that Luke read for us, okay? Where it says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think what we have here is not a change of heart, not a repentant spirit, but a forced submission because these people are still enemies of God. In spite of what they've experienced, in spite of what they've seen, in spite of what they've heard, yes, they'll bow the knee because they're forced to, but they're still enemies of God. But understand, all of this means that the King is coming. Then the seventh angel sounded... <clears throat> And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign 
forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Wow. There it is. You've begun to reign. But you see, those who had submitted, those who had bowed the knee in false homage are part of verse 18. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bold servants, your bond servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. You remember in Exodus, <clears throat> the people were told, prepare a place where God can come and meet with you. They call it their tabernacle. And in understanding the description of the tabernacle, we, we get the teaching from that portion of Scripture that what was being done was to copy, to make a model of what was existent in heaven, the place where God could meet with man. And I think that's what was happening here. This is the, this is the real thing. The temple of God which is in heaven. The, the, the tabernacle was a picture. The temple that they're going to rebuild is just a picture of that dwelling place of God in heaven. And so we get to see that opened up for us. Wow. The King is coming. He will reign. I believe He'll reign on earth. I believe that, that nations will bow and men will turn, <coughs> turn to Him. But there will always be those who are enemies of God. And they will be judged. And that's what we have when we come to chapter 12. <coughs> chapter 12, like chapter 11, is a little parenthesis. Um, Jake started talking about the judgments. Matthew continued with the judgments. Matthew carried us up to that seventh trumpet judgment. Does that sound right? You did six trumpet judgments. Okay, we're waiting for the seventh trumpet judgment. And if you remember, I, I just kind of skipped over it in a hurry, but the little phrase was, the second woe has ended, now the third has come. That seventh trumpet judgment was the pronouncing of seven more incredible judgments. And they're going to be, I think that's the bold judgments, does that sound right? And they will be poured out on, on the world. And it's all about war. But in chapter 12... There's, there's a little discussion here about all that has transpired. And so you want to read that and kind of pull everything together. And let's see if we can figure out um, some of those things. You'll notice <clears throat> that as you read that section that these are some of the, of the figures that are identified. And it's kind of like a story form. And so we have to kind of sort out who's being talked about. For example, the woman. The woman who's going to give birth to this child is Israel, the nation of Israel. The red dragon is more than likely Satan. Okay? The male child, we believe, from the description that's given, was our Lord Jesus. Michael is symbolic of the holy angels. The remnant are those who from Israel have trusted the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Christ. The sea beast, 
is a world dictator. The earth beast is a false prophet. Together, the world dictator and the false prophet proclaim that they are the Messiah. They will stand in, in the temple, in the place where God alone should sit, and they will say, worship us. We're, we're the God you're to worship. One has to do with, re, with a false religion that becomes worldwide. The other is the Antichrist, as we understand it. Okay, now try and keep those uh, seven identities in place as we work our way through this next, next section. I'm going to do it very quickly, okay? First off, we read that there's a war in heaven. There was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his uh, Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. What in the world was Satan doing in heaven? Well, according to this portion of Scripture, he's up there making accusation against you repeatedly. I can imagine, again, I'm just imagining it, I don't know this for certain, but I can imagine that every time I do something that is counter to bringing glory to God, something that it would be a sin in my life, I can just see Satan jumping up and saying, Whoa, hey, there he is. He did it again. And, and for me, it's pretty often. Okay? Maybe, maybe you can relate. He messed up. He tripped. He got mad. And what happens? I have an advocate. I have someone there who says, <clears throat> Excuse me, Satan. And he shows his hands and he shows his feet and he shows his side. And he said, My blood paid for that guy. Leverance is covered with the blood of Christ. Leverance's sin have all been forgiven. His past, his present, even his future have all been forgiven. Why? Because he put complete trust in the blood that Jesus shed when he died on the cross. Wow. Thank you for standing up for me, Lord Jesus. So that even in heaven, when my name is, is again brought before the throne as, as an accusation, the mediator that I have stands up and says, sorry, that one doesn't cut it here. Leverance is covered with the blood. <clears throat> Are you there? Is he doing that for you? Isn't that awesome? But here comes a time when, when God says that's enough. That's enough. No more of this accusation. You're out of here. And Satan is cast down to earth. And it's in the very last days of the tribulation. And when Satan hits earth, man, you talk about hell breaking loose, that's exactly what's going to happen. <coughs> and so there's war on earth. War on earth. I'm going over time, so I have to hurry. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, with Israel, went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. A terrible war on earth. But guess what? Guess what? Our God reigns. 
Our God wins. Our God triumphs. And you and I can have this confidence that if we're on His side, nothing can stand against us. And I'd urge you to read Romans, the last several verses, starting in verse about 27 of Romans 8. 27 to the end. And you'll see just how secure you are if you have put your complete trust, not trust plus, but complete trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we will reign with Him forever and ever. Father, we thank You that we have the assurance of Your Word, the very promise from God that cannot be altered, which cannot be broken, that we who have trusted the Lord Jesus as our Savior will reign with Him as He reigns both on the earth and in heaven. Bring that day, God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.